0: So yeah, it's after lunch. I'm the first guy after lunch, so that means everybody's got about six pounds of food in your gut. You're probably going to start doing that afternoon, you know, head bob thing. Try and keep it interesting, but uh, we'll just go forward from here. So how many folks are fans of The Mandalorian, right? Great show. This is the way. Even got some clapping going on. Mandalorian, super. My favorite thing about the show is that it's simple, right? The guy has a quest, and that's it. And he doesn't mess around. The mantra, the thing that they all say to each other this is the way. ZT, this is the way. We're going to talk about why that is. But I think at the end of the day, what we should all walk away, that what we're getting into here, the value that we get out of this and the way that we approach the problem, like this is the way. This is your Mandalorian moment. So I'm going to talk about why we continue to fail. I'm going to basically bury, burn, pave over the ashes of the perimeter-based model of security. We're gonna talk about some of the arguments against change that you typically run into and why those are usually not valid arguments in the first place, uh, which is gonna be lots of memes and lots of pop culture references, so be ready for that. There was a quiz at the end. We're gonna talk about what is zero trust. We've probably heard this way too much all day long. You're probably gonna hear it about 700 times more, but we're gonna go into a little bit of what the actual sort of history there is and then how it can be applied simplistically within the context of enterprise security. And then lastly, I'll say it again to remind everybody, like, this is the way. Cybersecurity, the market itself, is huge, is massive. $400 billion globally by 2026. 2018, you were looking at about $150 billion globally. 2023, 2024, you're getting up 400 Like, look at the amount of increase that's going on there. You want to talk about a crazy Kager? That's insane. Like when you think about the amount of money that we spend in cybersecurity, it's actually more money than we spend on cancer research in the United States, right? The cancer of cybersecurity, the money that we spend is more than it would be to cure a disease. That's pretty staggering. Metastatic cancer treatments is about 111 billion and that's by 2027, right? The previous slide said 400 billion for cybersecurity by 2024. Huge. This market just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But the problem is that this is not an issue of have we invested enough money? Where else in any other technology space or any other problem space would we continue to throw money down the well and not have an actual outcome? There are 717 companies that showed up last year at RSA. 717 companies that do cybersecurity that all do different pieces of the puzzle, that do different platform things, that do different stuff within cyber. You don't find that in other technology spaces. You don't even find that in other problem spaces. You're lucky if you get to a few hundred, right? This is, this is insane to think about the size of this market and how big it goes, and to think that we haven't actually solved the problem when we've known what's going on for 20, 30 years. The things that caused compromises and hacks 20 years ago, Really aren't that different from the things that cause compromises, hacks, and exploits today? Might be a little more complex, might be different pieces of the puzzle, but it's really kind of the same thing. <clears throat> to put this in context, if you think about the pandemic, right? Everybody's heard of the R-naught value. We've probably heard that way too much by now. R-naught for COVID and whatnot is two or two and a half or whatever. That means that you managed to spread this thing to so many people in so much, so small of an amount of time. It's pretty prolific. It gets, that's why we're all wearing masks in here right now or at least sitting six feet apart, and when your mom comes over, you gotta be like, mom, you gotta stay away. Cyber pandemic is bigger than that. Who ever heard of WannaCry, right? Anybody deal with it when it actually happened? Anybody was responsible for that? That was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) WannaCry, when it launched in 24 hours, 45,000 infections in 74 countries. If you go and actually crawl through the data there, the attack has continued to spread over that weekend 10,000 organizations, 200,000 individuals in 150 countries. That R-naught value is infinitely larger than the R-naught value for COVID-19, right? Think about how much money, how much loss, how much time, how much craziness we've dealt with in one year for COVID-19 with an R-naught value that is exponentially less than WannaCry. And WannaCry is one infection with one vector across a bunch of machines, This just gets bigger, bigger, bigger. We don't not know that there is a problem here and we continue to throw a lot of money at it, but it's pandemic level and it's only gonna get more pandemic-y if we don't fundamentally address the problems that cause this stuff. On average, according to a study from the University of Maryland, which has a really good cybersecurity program, an internet-connected computer is attacked every 39 seconds. So by the time I finish talking about this slide, two or three more machines are gonna be attacked. An internet connected machine is scanned every seven to 11 seconds. So the moment that you take your phone, your kids log in, somebody fires up a box, VM goes live, whatever else, count to seven and that machine's been scanned. Count to 39 or 40 and it could have been compromised. And just do that math in your head. How many people in here have more than one device with you right now? How many people have more than two? How about more than four? Anybody have more than four? There's somebody in the back, right? How many of those devices are wirelessly enabled? How many of them are network connected? How much are they connected to those systems? How many times in a given day in a 24-hour period are they scanned, are they likely compromised, goes forward, gets bigger, better, faster? Like the threat space, the pandemic level, the, the continued cataclysm only gets bigger, better, faster the longer that we're online and the more devices we bring online. Estimates say that by 2024, there will be seven network-enabled devices for every one human on the planet. Seven network-enabled devices for every one human on the planet. We have, what, seven billion people on the planet? That's a lot of networks. That's a lot of machines doing a lot of things. How many of those extra seven machines per person do you think are going to be secured by default from the manufacturer? Not a lot. There is a frequency that takes place here. And this is where I like to kind of wrap people's head around. Small businesses are kind of the same as enterprises. A lot of times you talk to small businesses and they say, well, we're small. We don't have the same problems that enterprises do. No, you do. You have the same problems. You just probably aren't as aware of it as big enterprises are because they have teams that this is all that they do. If you look at the data, the statistics, small, less than 1,000 employees, four seven incidents, 221 with a confirmed data disclosure, large 8,666 incidents. Now, why is that? Well, they're bigger. They get tacked more, but it's not that they did anything necessarily that different. It's still, statistically speaking, across the numbers is relatively the same. The top patterns, I like how they say everything else. Well, what is everything else? Everything else is just you got owned. Web applications, everything else, miscellaneous errors, 70% of breaches. Privilege misuse for big enterprises is 70% of the breach. Threat actors, everybody says that small businesses don't deal with the same threat actors as big companies. No, they do. It's pretty much in the same line. External, 74 for small, 79 for large. Internal for small, 26. For large, 21, right? They're within a few percentage points of each other. Point being, the same actors target small enterprises that they do for mega enterprises. It's not that different. Why are they motivated? Well, guess what the number one motivation is? Money, espionage, right? Fun, grudge, data that they go after, credentials. The number one thing they go after is credentials. Credentials gets even worse when you really look at the number of accesses and passwords that any given user has in any given day. If anybody want to guess what the normal sort of uh, sort of accepted number is around how many, how many passwords are actually out there that are known to be compromised. Anybody want to guess? Pick a, pick a number hundred million? Huh? Try 300 billion. Right? This is when you're like Matthew McConaughey. They're like taking a deep drag off of that cigarette. 300 billion. If you do the math and you crawl through it and you say, well, if I've got the average of three devices per person, how many folks in here have more than, say, 25 accounts that you use for personal stuff? Right? How many folks in here have more than, say, 50 accounts that you use for business? 25-ish, right? So you're one person with three or four devices with 50 plus accounts, each one having a username and a password that have all been breached somewhere that's out there. The numbers just continue to get bigger, bigger, bigger. If you're going to solve a problem, if you're going to look for where the bad guys are going to go, it's going to be around users, credentials, accesses, those types of things. And if you don't deal with that, you should be smoking that cigarette like he is right there. The odds are not in the favor of the defender in most places. The only place where you're actually doing well with this is if you happen to be the Mandalorian, you're facing off with stormtroopers because they can't shoot for shit. They'll miss. If you play the odds around emails, around phishing, one in 323 emails that you get is malicious. How many emails do you get in a given day? How many emails do you get in a given week? How many emails do you get in a given month? Again, take 300 billion compromised usernames and passwords Take one in 123 or 323 emails being malicious, start combining that into the picture more and more and more and more, right? It's not looking good for the home team if we continue to try and solve the same problem the same way. It's just going to lead to more and more and more and more compromises. More technology does not fix this issue. We talked a lot about fishing training, right? This morning, Danny and I were sort of poking at it. Danny likes to talk about people being dumb and those types of things. I like to say that I can train you and I can try to help you, but I can't fix you. How many folks have been through fishing training in the last 12 months? How many folks really enjoyed that fishing training? Probably very few of us, right? Unless you've got some good content. The percentage of organizations that have had training or awareness sessions in the last 12 months, look at the the spread there. Businesses overall, globally, it's only about 10%. So they're only about 10% of businesses are even training on phishing globally. We have this massive market that's built around this, and we have, have billion-dollar companies out there that are supposed to be teaching people about cybersecurity and phishing and anti-phishing and all those other things, and only 10% of businesses are even engaged. With small companies, 25%. We do a little bit better in small, a little bit better in medium size. Finance and insurance, not too great. And then charities, which is an area where you wouldn't think they would be targeted because they just try and do nice things for people, they get gone after all the time. If that low of the threshold is what's occurring, then how much possible compromise activity do we have on top of that? Remember, one in 323 emails is a fish. If you've only got 10% of your workforce trained, how many folks are likely to cause a compromise? And hey, users be users right? Users do user things. This is one of my favorite slides I've ever used in a speech because you can see this is somebody that has an RSA token for multi-factor auth and they're not at home. So what do they do? They actually set up a webcam to take a picture of their RSA key while they're somewhere else doing work and they're streaming it over the internet. So right, this is like MFA fail 101, And the best part about it was when they put this up there, if you did a little bit of digging on Shodan, if you've ever used Shodan, there was like 7,000 people that were looking at this particular piece of content. So their MFA was basically live streamed to the World Wide Web. Users are users. I would guarantee that this person, because they knew enough to set up a webcam and take a picture of their RSA token, they're relatively technically savvy and they definitely understood what it meant for MFA. They just chose to go the lazy route and figure out a way around it and they compromised God knows what else because of the way that the system was set up. Users be users. I can't fix you. I can't make you not be you. Should I continue to try? Users be users. Seven percent of Americans, and this is an actual validated study, think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. Right? That's roughly 16 million Americans, which is larger than the population of a couple states. They don't think that chocolate milk is cocoa and sugar. They think that brown cows make chocolate. Well, where does strawberry milk come from then? But I mean, in reality, the point here is, do you think that you can train people that don't live and breathe this every day to do things that they shouldn't do when we can say unequivocally, grown people, 7% of the population of the United States does not understand the concept of cows make milk and you put cocoa and sugar into it? that chocolate milk does not come from chocolatey cows, right? Users be users. They do user things. They're going to cause compromises. They're going to be the avenue of exploitation. If you work in SecOps, I mean, this is basically our job. Danny had the thing this morning of uh, Austin Powers getting stuck. But, I mean, this is us. If you've worked in a SOC, if you work in IT support, if you work in Red Team, if you work in something where you're trying to keep users safe, I mean, this is it, it's a big, big problem and you've got a little bitty hook. And all you can do is just continue to dig and dig and dig and hopefully the tide, the current, the users don't decide to go even harder into the sandbar, which happens pretty often. I'm sure everybody in here that runs into soccer or works into soccer or whatever else thinks that this is pretty much how life looks for you. It's a big dig and it's not a very easy thing to get out of. If you look at the math, if you look at the data, where is the likely avenue for exploitation? And this is over a 10-year life cycle. Brute force of stolen creds. What does that mean? Users are the ones that cause those, right? Users, how many, how many people have bad passwords out there? How many folks in this room reuse a password on more than one site? I do, right? I don't use it on anything I care about, but I do it because I don't wanna use a 37-character password for where, you know me setting up a golf-tee time. Doesn't matter people are gonna cause compromises, users. Second thing is passwords, phishing, applications, and endpoints. Those are the majority of the problem that you deal with when you talk about stopping compromises. But we apply technology everywhere all the time. Like I said, 700 plus companies at RSA. We spend more money on cybersecurity than we do on researching and curing metastatic cancer. But this is where the problem lies. This is where the fix has got to be applied. This is where the strategy has to go to start making things better for everybody as we continue to get better in this space. If you do other things, you're solving the wrong problem at the wrong time. Does this sound relatively familiar? You've probably heard this from lots of different vendors in the space. 582 information security professionals responded 50% said they do not believe their organization is prepared to repel a ransomware attack right now this minute. 50 percent. So if you're in a room of 80 people, 40 of them basically will flat out say we are not ready to deal with ransomware if we get hit. That's pretty scary when you think about how big we have it out there. 75 percent of companies infected with ransomware were running up-to-date endpoint protection. They were running AV. Great. So what? What does most ransomware do? Calls PowerShell, does things out on the internet, all the stuff Danny talks about that shouldn't be allowed to happen. 75 percent of them. They were running AV. We had the most up-to-date, multi-billion dollar or whatever that we got from somebody that had raised a whole bunch of money, and it didn't stop it. Why? Because it didn't deal with the fundamental problems. 64% of Americans have never checked to see if they've been affected by a data breach. How many folks have been on Have I Been Pwned? Have you checked, right? Have you checked for your family, for all those other folks that work for you? 64% 64% of Americans, I bet it's probably slightly higher than that because the group is not quite that large, but 64% have never even looked to see if they've had one of those bad passwords, password one, two, three, that's been compromised, it's tied to an account that they use to authenticate to something that probably touches a piece of business infrastructure somewhere. <clears throat> Sonatype also found that supply chain attacks on open source software surged by 430% as of 2020. Now, I'm guessing they're probably counting in some of the stuff that went on with solar, solar winds in there, but regardless, 430%. How many folks in here use open-source software for stuff? How many folks have developers that use open-source software to build things that they put into their systems? It's really, really bad. Like, the problem space that we deal with, the overall size of the market, the fact that we continue to throw lots and lots of money in there, and the way that we try and address the problem that we haven't fixed it for 30 years— I mean, this is kind of what we should all be thinking. We're all going to die. Like that's, that's how bad it could be. It's a big, big issue. Bad space, lots of, lots of compromises, solving the wrong problems. We're still not fixing the issues that we should be fixing. <clears throat> the average size of companies in the United States is actually more small and mid-sized business. If you look at the numbers and you compare the two, you can see that 64 64 million roughly, and that's not including single single person companies, relatively rival large enterprise. But we solve for large enterprise problems. Large enterprises have all the money. Large enterprises have the capability. They have the technology that they need. They buy more stuff. They throw more things at the problem. SMBs typically don't have that offering, don't have that capability, don't have that need but they're just as large, almost statistically within a few percentage points of an enterprise. Why should they solve the problem any differently? Is it because they don't need to do the same things? Well, no, we've proven that. Is it because they don't know what the problem is? No. Is money not been thrown at it? No. What is it really? Why are SMBs not able to solve the problem like everybody else? It's because they're not a focus. This is a survey that I conducted recently to try and see if people on basically Twitter, LinkedIn, and those types of things thought that SMB security is a focus area for the big cybersecurity technology providers. And I put a key word in there that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to, was real focus. Do SMBs get the same treatment from big enterprise providers that everybody else does? When I was at Forrester, I can tell you repeatedly that I did workshops with some of the biggest providers on the planet. And most of the time, they're asking, how do we grow the business? How do we get more customers? How do we grow more clients? How do we serve things bigger? How do we gain more revenue? Well, the answer from me was always, well, you need to serve the SMBs. There's exponentially more opportunity there. If you're serving just big enterprise, just Fortune 200, Fortune 500, you can only have so many gorillas in a room punching away at each other. If you do enterprise, if you go small business, it's much, much larger. But I've had... Big time CEOs, big time CISOs, big time technology leaders at those big security providers literally say, it's not worth our time and effort to try. Like, we'll put it out there if they want to get it, fire it up and use it, whatever, but we focus on enterprise. We want those two comma, three comma, four comma, whatever they are deals. Two comma deals that we even bother with. <laughs> three comma deals are bigger. SMBs are not a focus area, but SMBs, like we talked about this morning, are an avenue for compromise for everybody because we're connected in. CMMC is proving that. I think at lunch I had like three conversations with folks about solving CMMC. Like that's the fact that the government is pushing this stuff down and finally saying SMBs, you would better be able to do security like enterprise. But enterprise typically isn't vectored in to solve problems for SMBs. This continues to propagate failure because we try and solve the same problem Same way we have been doing with more technology, with more money, and we just go, go, go at it. We haven't actually addressed the reality of the issue and focused on where we can fix things. Next attack is not going to be different than the last attack. It's not. It's going to be slightly more nuanced, maybe slightly more different. But really, once they get in, it's going to be the same stuff. As an adversary, what do you do? You find a way in, you establish a beachhead, you move laterally, and do what you got to do. I mean, that's, that's how it works. And then you find a way out, you maintain connectivity, establish persistence, and just continue to go forward and do more, do more, do more, do more. And at the end of the day, when you do get found out, because you probably will, you've got enough accesses and enough long-term capability that it doesn't really matter. You'll come back later. Even If you look at Solar wind sat there for a couple of weeks to try and stay underneath the noise floor, and it wouldn't have been for, uh, except for a couple of employees that were really paying attention to a multi-factor off thing that went on, we wouldn't have found out about what was going on with this entire compromise in the first place. But it was the same stuff. If you go back, you can see that somebody will say, "Well, Solar Winds was entirely new. We haven't seen this type of thing before." No, not true. If you look at what happened with Marisk and Norse Hydro, they were attacked in a very similar fashion. Basically, they, were, they got DLL from somebody that they had uh, software connections with. It did the exact same things, proved the model, just so happened that ransomware worked for that particular attack, and they did what they do because the Russians like to train their cyber-op stuff in the Ukraine, and that's where they started this attack, and it worked its way over to Maersk and North Hydro. That was a 2017 thing, 2016-ish time thing, that was getting ready, practicing for what happened in 2020. But it was the same stuff. It really wasn't that different. Once they get in, they do the same things. If we solve the problem the wrong way, we continue to allow them to escalate and win. And if you use a bad password and you blame an intern, it's really, really bad. SolarWinds123, every other hack, like I like that picture from Pam on the office where what's the difference? It's not somehow some way they got in they're in, they did what they need to do. If it was SolarWinds123, then it's just like every other hack that we've ever known about because somebody had a bad password and admin credentials, and they moved through the system. But it's not that different. You find where you're going to go, you get access, and you move, and you continue to establish beachheads. And then when you do get caught, you come back later, and you resell and all those other things that we talk about. But it's not really that different. It's the same stuff over and over and over again. And again, we've applied so much money so much time, so much effort, so much technology, it must be that we're not solving the problem in the right way. Maybe it's about something slightly different. Maybe it's not about more tech. Maybe it's about the right way to solve the problem. And The bad guys will tell you that they're coming back. I think y'all were here for the underground presentation a little while ago. This is from an underground forum where they basically were selling access to servers that had been hit through SolarWinds and Microsoft, and they said, Here's what we're selling. And they put a little bit of a leak out. And then in the chat down there at the bottom, they said, well, why no more details? Well, we're not fully done yet. We want to preserve the most of our current access. Consider this a first batch. We're coming back. And they're telling you, if you're on the underground forum and you're looking at this stuff, that, look, we've got additional accesses. We're in. We're coming back. We're not giving you everything right now. This is going to cost you even to get in. They're coming back. They're telling us that this is what's going to happen. It's not a guess. How are they going to come back? Is it some crazy thing that we've never heard of? No. They're going to set up an access, and they're going to call out to the Internet. They're going to pipe themselves in. Like That's what's going to happen, and it's going to be on some sort of unknown, unmanaged piece of something out there that's going to allow that access to occur that's going to let them propagate within that system. But the bad guys are so bold and so brazen that they know that they're gonna have additional access that they've already created them. They're not sweating it and they're letting us know, look, we got the goods, we're coming back. This is not a ransomware thing. This is just, we are so deep into the system that there's nothing they can do about it. They're gonna try and remove us and we'll chill for a bit and then we'll come back. Just tell us what else you want. That's pretty scary when you think about it, especially when you think about how big some of these compromises have been and how much money that they applied to try and solve that problem. You know what the annual budget is for, like, Microsoft cybersecurity? security? It's like half a billion dollars. SolarWinds spent lots and lots of money on cyber. Still got ripped. Why? Solving the wrong problems the wrong way with the wrong strategic focus over time. It's that simple. CISO Andy's a really good guy to follow. If you're not following him on Twitter, I would suggest checking him out. He asked this question, in two years, should an enterprise CIO worry more about having SolarWinds in their system or having some other vendor with privileges just like SolarWinds, but who hasn't had a public breach yet? And what does everybody say? Other company. Don't worry about what you know about right now. Worry about what you don't know, right? Worry about all the open source software that you've put in, that you've let developers in. India and uh, Slovakia and all these other countries just build up, throw in block stuff and then ship it off to you and you turn it on, and fire it up inside of your network. Worry about what you don't know. Personally, I wouldn't, I'm not concerned about solar winds. Solar winds has already come and gone. We've already dealt with it. It's going to continue to be a problem. It's going to take us probably five years to dig ourselves out of the hole. But really, the point here is thinking about what's coming. Do we not know how to fix what's coming? No, we do. Will we fix what's coming? Maybe. Are SMBs still gonna continue to be the problem? I think so. I think that's a pretty good question. I think really the question is, why do we continue to see failures? Why do we continue to see the issues that we haven't resolved keep coming back and get us on the far end? Why do we continue to have organizations that say we have a secure perimeter and they think they're good? Every organization that's been breached had a secure perimeter. Most of the organizations that you talk to that have been owned were fully compliant, right? Compliance is a seatbelt on a 747. You got to have it to back away from the gate and it will probably help you not bounce your skull off the ceiling if you hit some turbulence. However, if everything goes to hell and that 747 slams into the ground at 500 miles an hour, a three inch strip of nylon is not going to make you walk away, right? Compliance and the perimeter-based model of security is a seatbelt on a 747, You have to move past that and do things in a different manner. The perimeter-based model of security has categorically, emphatically, academically failed. It does not stay up. It does not keep organizations secure. If you build a 50-foot wall, they will build a 51-foot ladder. It's just how things work. We've known about this for a long time. Bases can do it, physical space where you've got gates, guards, and dogs, and you can kind of run around, and if you see somebody come in, you probably can get rid of them, I mean, unless it's like James Bond or one of those types of things. But in in the majority of instances, you can sort of craft your, your defenses around this model in the physical space because you have really good eyes on glass and you can see what's going on around you. And you have defenses that are going to be vectored into a small spot. The scale of cybersecurity, the scale of the network does not allow that to function. It's too big. It's too dispersed, too many dark areas, too many moving parts. You can't have a perimeter-based model of security when the perimeter is constantly shifting. If the perimeter is not static and does not remain static, you do not have a perimeter to defend in the first place. But organizations still say, we have a secure perimeter. No, you don't. And this is not new to us. We have known that the perimeter-based model of security is going to fail since 1260 BC. Anybody know what happened in 1260 BC? Fall of Troy. Troy. Right? Trojan horse. And to prove that we've known about this for so long, what did we used to call malware? What do some people still call malware? Trojans. So we've known since 1260 BC the perimeter based model of security won't work. And we were even so snippy and smart that we called malware Trojans, knowing that that was how things got in. And we still built systems and said we have a secure perimeter. Like, how illogical and ir- irrational is that? We have known that this does not work for that long, but because we've had bases, because we've had forts, physical things that stayed static, where we could put a big wall up and we could get gates, guards, and dogs and keep bad guys relatively out other than Troy, it kind of works. So we said, let's do this in the cyberspace, and then things get bigger, badder, faster, and we continue to fail because we're applying the same things to a space that's not looking to use that anyone that tells you that they have a secure perimeter they don't as a former red teamer I can tell you that's what a secure perimeter looks like to me Ooh, juicy you think that you're good to go you think you're going to stay ahead of me no if you really know what you're doing you'll look through that chain link fence figure out where you want to go you'll look at the barbed wire that sounds like a problem okay oh wait there's a piece of plastic here let's call that uh johnsmith at gmail.com, admin one, two, three dollar sign. So I'm gonna clip that, I'm gonna walk through and then because I wanna make sure that I stay in and come and go as I please, I'll put that little piece of plastic back. And then when I will come in again, use another username and password, come back in and out and out. A secure perimeter categorically, fundamentally does not work. It will not save an organization. The folks that know what they're doing will clip that every day, all day and walk right through. And even if you have a big bad chain on it, they'll get an acetylene torch Like, they're going to find a way through that. Secure perimeter, just like Troy, way back in 1260 BC, we've known that this will not keep the adversary out. And in cyberspace, it is even less applicable. Folks will argue, too, that their business is cyber smart. Does anybody run into this where you see somebody that they say, well, we just, we're, we're good. Like, we know what we're doing. We've been trained, even though statistics tell us that it's about 10%. Four to 6% of the workforce will click links after phishing training, guaranteed all day every day from here till the end of days. Statistically speaking, and this is from a study that was published over the course of a decade, four to 6% of the workforce will click links after phishing training. Like I said this morning, you could glue their hands to the desk and they'll, find, they'll use their tongue to click a link. Like that's just how people are. And if you're a small business, are you willing to gamble Failure on four to six percent. If you're one person, okay, I can live with that. If you're 50, four to six percent is a couple of people. If you're 100, it starts to get larger and larger. If you're 10,000 people, four to six percent is a pretty large avenue of compromise. Again, the numbers are not in your favor if you continue to try and solve the same problem in the same way. And if you think that you can train folks not to be people, you can't. They're going to do things they shouldn't do. They're going to find stuff to click on. It's just the nature of humanity. No one should basically say that they're cyber smart. Even those of us that work in the space that have books and movies and God knows what else on it, there's always going to be something different that comes our way. I think you'll probably, you'll saw rubber ducky stuff earlier, right? You've seen dark web. There's always something new that's coming. There's going to be some other way that's going to come after you, but that four to six percent is going to be your weak point a lot of people too will say we've upgraded our legacy technology we've taken our old stuff and we've made it cyberific um, okay like what well we're using this different firewall mm all right well what else are you doing oh we're, we've we've taken this this on-prem thing and we've sort of kludged it and now it's sort of on y off prem me sort of cloudish so that's our That's our proxy, our reverse pseudo-proxy thingy. Okay, cool. But what you've really done is you've taken something that wasn't necessarily meant for what it's going to be used for, and you've strapped an M60 to its back and called it weaponized. I mean, that's kind of a four-wheel drive llama, I guess, because it's got four feet, and it does have an M60 on its back, but it's not really meant for warfare. Like, I don't think most people would freak out if that thing came rolling across the plane at you. Matter of fact, you'd probably die from laughter because you'd be like, what, what is going on here? <sighs> if you've upgraded legacy technology, if you've taken old stuff that was meant for something relatively simplistic that you used to use for like IT, and now you've called it a cybersecurity control, you've just basically weaponized the llama and thought that you've solved the problem. Um, it might be more mobile, which that thing's definitely mobile, but it's probably not actually... Opt- uh, like, Would you rather have a... Llama with an M60 on its back or an Abrams tank? I'd rather have the Abrams tank because it's built to fight. Llama with a Sim60 is cool, I think. Tank, way cooler for sure. So when you're talking to folks and they're talking about that they're spending more money, they're upgrading legacy technology, they're doing these things and making stuff different and sort of applying controls with old tech, it's really nothing more than this. And it's not going to serve you in the long run. That animal is not built to haul around M60s for very long. Actually, I think that's a PKK. Maybe it's an M60. But regardless, it's not meant to carry that stuff around for very long. Sooner or later, that llama is going to get tired of that thing and shake it off. And then you have a real problem because now you have a rogue llama with dragon and M60 behind it. You're also in a space where a lot of people are going to say they don't have enough people in cyber. We don't have enough people. There's not enough humans. We don't have enough people. There's not enough humans. I can't do this with the amount of people that I have. I need more budget. I need more people. You don't need more people like I'll stand on the hill and die on that hill. We have enough human beings in the space to solve cybersecurity problems. What we don't have is enough people to continue to solve cybersecurity problems with the wrong tools and the wrong technology in the wrong manner because you'll never solve the problem, which looks just like this poor schmuck right here trying to figure out how to take a lug nut off. And he says, I've used every tool I can think of. Have you used an impact wrench? Even a saw, I think he says, right? Oh, an ax. You don't have enough people to do the job if you're solving the problem in that manner, right? You're never gonna get there. That's what we have a lot of times when you talk to organizations is they don't have enough people. We can't do this because we're lacking. This is great for MSPs because this is your opportunity to come in and say, we will solve this problem for you, which is what you should be doing. There is a huge opportunity there, but you should also be using the right tools and the right technology along the right lines to optimize operations and solve those problems at scale. Not every alert requires a response either, right? A lot of the stuff that we use, we should be able to age off and move away and automate the response side of that equation. A lot of people have a misconception too that the cloud actually cares about your security by default. The cloud does not care about your security by default. Jeff Bezos does not wake up at night and roll around on his billions of dollars and go, man, I wonder if I set up secure infrastructure for people in AWS. Bill Gates does not worry about it either. This is actually from their terms of service from 2016. It's 2021 and they haven't changed it. Five years later, this is from AWS. The cloud provider is typically responsible for security of the cloud, meaning the cloud infrastructure, including security at storage, compute, network. The enterprise or small business or provider assumes responsibility for security in the cloud. So they're saying, we will basically say, we think we've got this network compute thing taken care of, but everything else is on you. Moving to the cloud does not mean that you're inherently more secure because you're moving to the cloud. It means you're taking your possibly weaponized llama and sticking it in the cloud. It's not going to get better if you don't use the right things to solve the right problems in the right way. And you can't just sit there and go, well, we're better because we're in the cloud, because of aliens, aliens did it. Most organizations that move to the cloud that use open source software that do things outside of the bounds of their typical enterprise perimeter, which we've already said is a failure, right? When you ask them, well, have you validated people that come in and out of your network? Have you validated those vendors and third parties? How about the suppliers? Media suppliers, like less than 15%. Wider supply chain, less than 5%. How many folks have actually gone in and validated all the security controls for the people that use things that touch your infrastructure? Not a lot of us necessarily. How many folks have actually gone into cloud infrastructure and said, well, these guys are talking and remoting into my system, so I want to make sure that everything that they use on the far end is secure before they get to my cloud? Probably not a lot of people. This is the same thing for mega enterprises. This is exactly what has occurred with a lot of these organizations that you see. SolarWinds, U.S. government, Microsoft, etc. It's because you don't have the time most of the time, right? You sort of take it for granted that somebody else is secure, that they're remoting into you and that they are more safe, that they've taken the time to get things right. They probably haven't. Right. Think about the, the numbers of this. All those connections, all those accesses, all those users, all those passwords, all that open source software, do you really think that it's likely that anybody else that is not inside the bounds of your limited control is more secure by, very, by the default nature of their firing up a system? Nope. They're going to introduce the risk into you. <clears> That's <throat> not a valid argument to say my company is more secure than another company because we validated that they have done the right things. Like if you can't say that your immediate suppliers are 100% certain that they have uh, secured their system, you're inherently less secure. And I talked about this this morning. How many folks in here have cyber insurance? Right, plenty of people do have cyber insurance. If you have cyber insurance, I really think you should probably be like Ralph Wiggum here and chuckling that you're kind of in danger. Cyber insurance is not necessarily there to solve the problem that you're dealing with. Cyber insurance is there as a parachute that you may or may not have deployed when you pull that rip cord, depending on a whole bunch of factors. <clears throat> insurance job is not to pay that premium. Have you ever wrecked a car and dealt with an insurance provider? Right? They don't just come rushing up after you wreck and say, oh my God, you destroyed your car. Here's a big giant check. No, they say, well, you've got to send us pictures and you need to go off and figure out what's going on. We're going to send an adjuster out there and we're going to figure out the depreciated value of your system. And then we're going to give that to you. And you sit there going, well, I've been paying insurance with this company for 25 years. I've paid for this car five times over. They say, well, I'm sorry. That's what your policy says. If that works in the automobile industry that way, how do you think it works in the cybersecurity industry where it's very likely you may not even be able to say, what happened when, how it happened, where it happened, who did what, you think the insurance company's gonna run up and drop a check on your front door? Nope, they're gonna take their time. Interestingly enough too, more recently, cyber insurance groups have become targets of criminals. Why is that? Well, because they have lots of valuable information about systems that they insure. If you're a bad guy, where else would you wanna go? Why go after really hard technical targets when you can go after insurance companies? Insurance companies that provide the policy to you that you are more secure because you've bought their insurance. This is like a self-licking ice cream cone of misery. It just continues to go round and round and round and round. And nowhere does anybody actually get any better and nobody's getting paid out. Criminal groups actually state that they like insurance providers. Right. This is from a uh, conversation that somebody had, I think it was Wired Magazine, with the threat actor, uh, I believe it was Guccifer, if you ever heard of Guccifer, um, the guy that should be arrested and put in a really dark hole somewhere. But basically said, do your operators that work for him target organizations that have cyber insurance? Unequivocally, yes. This is one of the tastiest morsels. Mm. Like that's where they want to go. Especially to hack the insurers first, not second to get their customer base and work in a targeted way from there. And after you go through the list, then hit the insurers themselves. So go to the insurance company, attack them, figure out what they got, make it worth your time and effort. Go off and attack who they're connected to, and then when you're done with them, go back to the insurance company and do it again, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And they put it out there, insurance company that was pwned, 1.2 terabytes posted to the underground. Another one, uh, I can't remember the name of it, yeah, air air off me, Uh, $5 million will get you everything that insurance provider has on the underground, like rapid sell. Chubb, anybody got Chubb insurance in here? If you do, you probably want to get on the phone with them right this is on this is on the underground with information from a attack by uh attackers out of a uh former soviet socialist republic that basically said like we got all the chub who wants it and they sold it on the underground and then they went back and they did exactly what we talked about where they stayed and came back and continued to resell and to this date we still don't necessarily know that they're out of chub altogether this was last week cna cna got hit hard anybody got cna in here if you got cna you should uh cya (laughs) things aren't going to change much either as we continue to go forward i think that this is pretty accurate in 2021 we're all still wearing masks even though we're vaccinated right showing you showing it you know joker showing it around the workplace the global workforce 26 percent is never going to go back to the office full-time How many folks in here are running to go back to five days a week sitting in a cubicle and doing two-hour commutes and all that stuff? Why? You don't need to do it. We've proven over the last year we can live in a remote world. You think people are going to rush to go back to the office full-time? No. A lot of us want to go back sometime. Like When Danny asked me to come down here and speak, I was so excited just to get out of my house that I was like, yes, I'll come. But then I remembered, wait a minute, do I got to put pants on? Because I haven't worn pants in like a year and flip-flops. But, I mean, it's one of those things where this is where we're going to be. We're all going to be remote. We're all going to be BYOD. Nobody wants to be necessarily governed and put inside of a box, so you've got to use technology that's going to make that possible. 70% increase in the use of remote connectivity over the course of the last year. Huge. 76% increase in BYOD. We don't all want to be at the office anymore. What does that mean? Well, all those compromised things, all those issues that we had inside of that secure failed perimeter now apply to us all as we are more remote and we are doing things outside of that enterprise infrastructure. We're all way outside the perimeter right now. In reality, what that looks like for us is basically like this scene from uh, uh, Resident Evil, where hopefully we're way up on the hill and we can see the perimeter of the infrastructure we want to get to. And there's a whole lot of bad between us and there, and we have some way of getting from this to that. That's where ZT starts coming in. That's where the things that we've talked about this morning start playing in the space. There's a movement going on around this, and it's zero trust, right? 78% of organizations are moving to embrace ZT globally. A lot of them will say, we're on the path. We're just starting. We got a ways to go. Okay, great. Work your way there. This is going to take time. 9% of the DoD has adopted ZT as a long-term strategy. I did a workshop very recently with a major DoD enterprise They said flat out their plan to get to ZT was 2030. Like that's how long they're scoping this out. So they realize, and to their credit, they said it's taken us 30, 40 years to get where we are. It's gonna take us a decade to get better. And they're the DOD, they can print money. Like anything they want, they're gonna continue to buy and throw it in that system. But for them to realize it's a decade's worth of growth, that's pretty significant. Like the rest of us should realize it's going to take time to continue to get to that next spot. 13% 13% of major financials, 14% of healthcare, 89% of security and risk leaders agree, nine out of 10 technology people, especially cybersecurity technology people, agree that perimeter-based model of security has failed. If you can get nine out of 10 technology people to agree on anything, that's significant. The total addressable market for ZT is about $40 billion. And that's not even including if you tie services on top of that. Like this is a big defined market that continues to get bigger Because of the fact that we address the fundamental issues, we remove all the arguments, and we do the things that we need to actually secure infrastructure the right way. How many folks in here recently have heard of SASE? S A S E, Secure Access Service Edge, right? It's kind of comical that that's the best term that Gartner could come up with from a former Forrester guy. Because anytime they tell me that they're focused on SASE, I think of this. And I don't know many CISOs that want to run to the board and be like, I'm SASE, child. It's zero trust, right? That's what you're trying to do. Zero trust, zero trust, network access, those types of things. Number one, it sounds a lot cooler than saying you're sassy. But number two, it's been around a lot longer. It's a fundamental approach to the problem. Zero trust. Categorically, this is what it means. Never trusting, always verifying. Like, that's it. It can be that simple. Don't trust. If you're from Texas like me, don't trust nothing, right? Never trust, always verify. The definition, the academic definition for zero trust, strategically focused on addressing lateral threat movement within the network by leveraging micro-segmentation, and granular enforcement based on user context, data access control, location, application device posture. If you are doing those things, you are enabling zero trust in some particular way, shape, or form, right? In some way, you are doing ZT. Why not actually call it something strategically to help everybody else understand what you're doing and why you're doing it? There's a lot of value to being able to say, we subscribe to enabling zero trust instead of we do security. What is security? Security is big broad, zero trust is this. This has been around for a long time. I talked this morning about the fact that this has been around since 2003. Anything in the technology space that's been around for 20 years and has modified and changed with the space and has become something that is an industry standard across the globe is probably worth looking into. And you can see that it's changed from 2004, 2003 time where it was network access control, sort of death by firewall, to now where it's moved into identity, conditional access, all those other things that we talk about, the bigger, broader portfolio of needs. There's books being published on it. But it's continued to evolve as technology in the space has become enabling for zero trust. And this does not have to be super complex or super hard. We're solving relatively simple problems if you boil it away and look at it in the right light. If you say, what are the three things you got to do? It's this, with everything all the time. Verify explicitly, least privilege access, and assume breach. Danny talks about that all the time. That's it, that's ZT in a nutshell. If you say nothing else during a workshop, that's what zero trust is. That's what zero trust needs to get to that space. If you say, well, how does this work for an organization? It can be this simple. Think about it this way, people need access to resources. People make things happen in businesses. People need access to resources to make things happen. I need access to my O365. People, me, I think, need access to a resource, O365, email, whatever. How do I do that? With a device. One of those four devices that we probably all have. People on devices need access to resources. How do we do that? Well, we use a network. That network may be owned, maybe not owned, maybe managed, maybe unmanaged, could be your ISP, could be some crazy network that you built, could be a piece of fiber running from the back of my machine to wherever it needs to go. People on devices use networks to get to resources. Zero Trust comes in when you apply policy. People on devices using a network to get to a resource, you apply context, information, data, telemetry, all those things and a control. This is not okay, therefore I stop it. This is okay, therefore I allow it. This is weird, therefore I stop it. Literally can be that simple. People on devices using networks to get the resources need a zero trust policy which uses context and control and is done with intelligence and automation at speed and at scale. That is the zero trust life cycle in a nutshell. That is the simplistic manner that can be applied to the problem if done correctly to solve the issue. Think about what goes on in cyber Think about what you have to have happen to cause exploits, think about where it goes from bad to worse. If you do this, it can literally be that simple to eliminate the issue. And you have to apply it over the long time, you have to do this in a marathon, and it has to be strategy, but this is what Zero Trust looks like. You may have heard of BeyondCorp from Google. BeyondCorp is Google's version of Zero Trust. And Google has been running with BeyondCorp since they got owned for Operation Aurora. Have you seen Google in the news with a major breach in the last couple of years? Nope, you know why? Because they moved to beyond corp, because they moved to zero trust for all employees globally, right? Across the entirety of their infrastructure. If it works for Google at that size and that speed and that scale, why can't it work for a company of 50 employees? And if you look at this model, identity, context, rules, engine, enforcement point, apps and data, it looks very much like this model. People on devices using networks to get the resources, you apply a policy using context and control, and the one thing that you take care of at all times, segmentation. I don't want to allow the compromise to proliferate. If I can stop that from occurring, I win. As long as I get in the middle of those things with my policy, wherever I apply it, I'm applying zero trust. People on devices use networks to get the resources, context and control applied in intelligent and automated fashion, to take care of segmentation. That's zero trust. That's what it looks like. You can say an FTE on a domain join machine, managed machine, off my corporate network, ISP, go into email. What do you do? Apply those things, apply the policy, segment, segment, segment. There's no anomalies, it's just normal. Chase logs in every day from Virginia, it's on this IP address, nothing looks weird. Okay, cool. What's the one thing I put in the way? Multi-factor auth. Like there you go. That's a zero trust policy with segmentation applied across the lifecycle of people on devices using networks, to get to resources. You can put all whatever technology you want, pick it, throw it in there. As long as it maps into that particular approach, it is enabling zero trust and it is solving the problem with a zero trust manner. And the bad guys do not win all the time. Personally, I'm tired of hearing folks say that the bad guys only have to be right once. Having been on the space of the bad guy, that's not how it works. The bad guys have to be right just as much as you have to be wrong. This is the kill chain from Lockheed Martin. You've probably all seen this, but if you really think about it, for the adversary to win to walk away without having that capability set I talked about with that life cycle, you can't control a couple things in here. You can't control them reconning you. You can't control me driving around your house and looking at your house to figure out where you're weak. I can do that all day, every day. If I do it too many times, you might be able to get the cops to come look at me and they'll probably tell me to go away, but guess what, I'll come back later. I can recon you all day and you can't deal with weaponization. I'm gonna find stuff. I'm gonna find a way to break it. I'm gonna use things. And I'm gonna exploit it and get it into that system. I'm gonna weaponize it and get it ready you can't stop me from doing that. What you can stop is my success with delivery. You can stop my success when I exploit the system. You can stop with installation, command and control, and exfil. So if you do it right, you can actually eliminate five of the problems that you have to deal with in the kill chain and leave the adversary with two wins. The adversary must maintain access for success. If you do things along the lines of solving the problem strategically with that life cycle that I talked about, You remove the power from them. You eliminate all that other stuff. Bad guys have to maintain access to be successful. There are categorical business benefits for organizations that implement zero trust. The ones that are the most useful, the ones that are the most game-changing, the wins here, zero trust has helped our organization become more agile. What business do you talk to that doesn't want to do things bigger, better, faster? Zero trust can help enable that. Zero trust has increased our employees' productivity. More productive employees is a good thing. How many people like operating in a, in a security state where you feel like you're constantly just being beat with security technology? None of us do. If you do ZT and you run along the lines of what I was talking about with that framework, that life cycle, it becomes easier. MFA is not that hard. MFA does not impact you. Using a VPN probably sucks. Zero trust has increased user satisfaction and, or, and has reduced our organization security cost. If you said nothing else, if I came in and said I can do these four things for you, would you be interested in figuring out how we could work together? If I said I can make your employees more productive, I can reduce costs, I can make you more operational and more agile, who wouldn't want to entertain that conversation? Like, that's the reality if you apply this correctly. And lastly, like I said for the Mandalorian, like it's really this simple. This is how it works. If you're driving down the street and you see that sign, if you hit this sign, you will hit that bridge you have two choices. This is where we're at in cyberspace. Your two choices are you can see that sign and you can go, well, I saw somebody else make it through there. So if I smash the gas and go as fast as I possibly can, I might have enough momentum to carry me through. And maybe I'll keep driving on the far side, which is what a lot of organizations do. Everybody else got breached. They did the same thing that I do, but they're different than me somehow. So I'll just keep going and I'll hopefully win because maybe I won't get caught. Or you can say, I know I'm gonna wreck, like this is gonna be bad if I don't change the way I'm going forward, if I don't think about that this is the way and make a hard right and go around the problem, right? Solve it fundamentally, do things differently and get past the problem. That's how simple this can be. That's what Zero Trust can enable. That's where you wanna go. And At the end of the day, this is the way.